Good morning. So what does uh, Delaware and Michigan have, and you can't answer this, have in common? Delaware and Michigan have in common. There's a very, very large common point. If you know your geography, it would be really easy. If you don't know your geography, you look like you look right now. Nope. So there is a specific, like Michigan is what geographically? What are we? A mit what, uh, there we go, a peninsula. What is Delaware on? A peninsula. So you have these two distinct bodies that are the, the same, right? So people look at Delaware, you probably never look at Delaware actually on a map because you just would blow by it. But it, it, is, it is a very small portion of a peninsula. Um, and so historically, my family is from the peninsula. My dad grew up in Delaware. My mom passed a couple years ago, and so we were able to go and, and help him. We're still doing that. He'll be 85 this year. And so because of the nature of our ministry right now, it's uh, facilitated us after being many years out of the country and not being able to help my parents or Carrie's parents. Uh, right now, we have the blessing to do that. So it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do that. So last time I was here, uh, I forget what I shared with you. Uh, but we as a family continue to, to uh, lead the team of Servant Leaders International. Uh, we are on the ground in various places. We function as a team, even though we're a very non-traditional team. We don't occupy the same space, uh, but we do occupy the same mission and vision, and we work very closely together. Uh, we have members of our team in Europe and Germany. Uh, we have two families, part of different German teams there as well. Uh, we have uh, on the ground here in the States, in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and in Brazil. And we function as a team. Uh, being the, the world that we are today, we can communicate in ways that we could not communicate before. So when Carrie and I left for the, for the field years ago, uh, I can remember I was telling my kids that when I was in Ecuador in 1990, okay, long time ago, uh, my junior year in college, I spent an internship in Ecuador in 1990. And the way that I communicated with Carrie was by shortwave radio. And so my kids have no clue what that is. Uh, the missionaries would call home, everybody shaking, some of you are shaking your heads, and you'd have to get on this radio and find the frequency, and you'd find the voice, and then you'd be, hello, over, and you'd, that would be your conversation. When we moved back as a family, internet was brand new, and we uh, had phone lines then, but it was like $5 a minute. So we talked to our family uh, maybe twice a year for five minutes. And so that was our communication. And now uh, there's an app you can put on your phone called WhatsApp, and the world uses it. And I can stand here right now and call somebody in China or Ecuador or Nicaragua, and they'll answer in their home on their cell phone, and we have a conversation. And as long as you have Wi-Fi or cell data, it's free. I can be walking down the street. So our level of communication has totally changed the uh, really what is our ability to conduct life and ministry uh, globally. And so as a team, we do that. We share a vision and a mission to help the church to multiply. We desire to see the churches be healthy, to have the resources and the personnel to be able to go from the inside out, uh, to see the, the need to have churches be the most powerful organisms on the planet. We've institutionalized, and I've talked to you about this before over the years, that we are not a church is not an institution. One of the problems with the church has become institutionalized. And if you find a definition of what is an institution, 
you'll find in the dictionary that it says an institution is an, an organization that shares a purpose or a cause uh, or it acts like a society, right? Uh, the church is none of those. The church does not come together around a cause, around a common purpose. We come together around a person, and we are held together by a person. So Jesus is our reason, right? That is what holds us together. That is what brings us together. And so we are something very distinct and different than an institution. We are a living organism. And as a living organism composed of individuals, that creates that power because those individuals now represent the transformational power of the gospel. And the gospel then comes into our lives, brings us in communion with God, right? Reestablishing our connection with the creator and the giver of all things and all life, and then gives us a cohesive union together that makes us this powerful organism that now can impact the world. So an institution is impacted by politics. An institution is impacted by economics. An institution is impacted by wars and borders. But an organism is not. It moves, it flows, it, it adapts. And that's what we are. And the power of the Holy Spirit in each one of us gives us that ability to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul lays out this idea that we've read before, but it is so critical. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is the gospel. It's the most powerful thing that has ever existed, and the gospel is Jesus Christ. And so when we come together and we are transformed together and we are united together, we are unstoppable. We are unstoppable. We are now able to realize what we truly and who we truly are and who we were created to be. The struggle is, of course, that it doesn't matter if you're in Ecuador or you're in Nicaragua or you're in Detroit. The struggle is how we respond to that. Because we, as a group, want the comforts and the, the structure and the formality of an institution. We want to... Be safe, right? I spoke yesterday and talked about the idea that we hold high in our list of values self-preservation. We hold high in our values that we're autonomous, that we can do what we want to do when we want to do it, right? And that when we come into the gospel and we are now being saved every day from ourselves, we now come under the order and the leadership of one who asks, the beauty of, of what we have in sanctification is that we have a God who now comes into our life. And we know that theologically it was prophesied that one would come and he would be with us. Jesus, the gospel. And then in John 14, Jesus gives this idea that he says, No, no longer will I be with you, I will be in you. God in us. In the form of the Holy Spirit, now he takes up residency in us and now begins to, from the inside out, work this powerful work of transformation, what we call sanctification. Our principal discipler is Jesus. He's working out in our lives this process of changing us into something we could never imagine. In his power, making us what we could never expect. 
but he doesn't do so in a way that he pushes down doors. He runs over us. He is gentle. He is meek. He is loving. And he comes in and he desires to transform us and asks that we turn ourselves over to him as living sacrifices. So open up in, in your Bibles to one of the shortest portions of Scripture, Philemon. And as I think about church planting and whether you are working here in the United States in Detroit or you are in Nicaragua, the idea of the most powerful organism on the planet again goes back to the individuals that make up her existence, the church. The idea that when we are born again and God is saving us from ourselves, this powerful work that he does as our principal discipler in coming into us and working with us is a big ask. And throughout scripture we see, especially the, the writings of Paul and the testimonies of Paul, that you see Paul's impact on people's lives in the form of a big ask. He is moving closer to people in this accompanying God in this process of discipleship. God is working out his, his plan in their lives. He's sanctifying them. He's transforming them in the power of the gospel. And Paul comes alongside to accompany the work of God to be used as an instrument. And Paul was a very special man. He could ask some very, very difficult questions. In Philemon, we find a testimony of a discipleship relationship that is worthy of a movie, worthy of some, some books, a short letter, but the content is powerful. The content is incredible. Let's, let's read really quickly because we don't have a lot of time here. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, my God, always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what, I, what is required, yet for the love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you from my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but on your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write, to, I, Paul, write this my own, with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. As I've gone through ministry uh, and wrestled with the idea of church planting and going into a, a culture that is not my own and working with a people that are not my own, not from my tribe. And the desire to not only see people impacted by the gospel in the sense that they're positionally changed, like they move from dead to living, but also move in this process where this transformation that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, this powerful gospel message that is saving them every day occurs, that they are transformed into something far beyond what they could imagine. But understanding that, it's a big ask. It's a huge ask. Because God never expected us to be positionally changed, giving us salvation, being born again, and things staying the same. He never said, hey, Cam, I, I desire you to come to, to understanding and knowledge of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and be born again, and then just go on your merry way. And... And, and some people would even say, and your life would get better. No, the ask is totally different. When I was born again, the expectation is now that my assignment in life changes and my need to submit in obedience dramatically changes because I now am a servant. Paul mentions this in, in Romans. It makes it very clear that I'm now a slave to righteousness. I now submit myself to the leadership and authority of someone else but as a man humanly looking to another man and asking asking a big ask it's hard and Paul was so good at this because he was so obedient he was so phenomenally willing to take risks and sacrifice and put himself in a position that when he would ask others to go beyond and do something so spectacularly crazy they looked at him and they couldn't argue because he did it. He was doing it. It wasn't abnormal. This letter was written. This letter was written for multiple asks. We know that the title of the, the letter, Philemon, represents the leader of a family, leader in a house church, somebody who had sacrificed much. We can't imagine what it would take in these time periods to not only just become part of a small body, a local body of believers, but to step it up and truly give of yourself and lead. That ask of itself is amazing in these times because that would set you apart. Because the ask was not only to lead, the ask was to open in hospitality, revealing your family, your life to the community in a way that you're just not attending. The other person in this mix is a man that we have very little information about. 
We know that he was a slave. He was a bondservant. He was under the care and obligation of Philemon. We're not going to dive into the nuances of slavery. But this man, this man had a dream. And that dream was freedom. (laughs) And he fled. And we know that he fled 1,300 plus miles. Mostly on foot. There's been much discussion about why he did that. But he did it. And we don't exactly know except by the providence of God that he came into contact with Paul. And in that contact with Paul, this this man who desired to be free, he had the image of getting away from bondage, comes to Paul and becomes a slave. He's born again. And Paul writes this letter explaining he doesn't go into depth. We don't know exactly how much time that they spent together. But it's amazing to me that you could not sit next to Paul and spend very much time before he had big asks. I mean, one of my favorite couples in Scripture were asked just after moving in an international international move, he turns to them and asks them to move again. The book of Acts is full of this. And Paul turns to this young man. We don't know how old he is, we can imagine. But he comes to Christ, he now moves from slavery and bondservant in this town, and he flees over 1,300 miles, and he becomes a slave again to righteousness. And Paul works with him, and Paul's not in a great position, right? He's a prisoner. He had every reason to mope and be discouraged. The institution of government on the outside pressing in on the the organism of the church on the inside. And Paul could have thrown up his arms and said, man, I'm just too tired. I'm just too worn out. And it says, old man, I'm just old. Leave me alone. My years are done. I I don't have the energy or the passion to do it. And he doesn't. He expends his energy and he reaches this young man and he pours into him. And he doesn't say, hey man, you just walk 1,300 miles. Go 1,300 miles the other direction. Because get as far away from that as possible because slavery is bad. He turns to Onesimus and he begins to walk with him. And he asks this big, huge ask. You, you got to go back. You got to go back. You got to move back to where you came from. I don't know where, where you're at. I can only imagine the positions that you find yourself in with work, with family, uh, finances, man, things with the government. <laughs> I've lived through multiple coups in South America. Uh, I've watched people lose everything from their bank accounts. Ecuador dollarized in the year 2000. I was in a Bible study with a family, and the news flash came on that the government closed down all the banks. I mean, just with one failed swoop, banks are closed. With no announcement or idea or understanding when they would open back up. And everybody panicked. You can imagine. All of a sudden, your bank, your, what you would think you could go to and, and withdraw your money is gone. It's closed. And the people didn't understand what was about to happen. What was about to happen was the government was to flip the sucre and make it the dollar. 
And the government took upon itself what they felt was the only means possible to, to conserve the economy, and that was to dollarize the whole country. I, I watched that. I observed that. Again, an American receiving dollars from outside, not an Ecuadorian who had all their money put into a bank account that no longer existed in Sucre's. The pressure from the outside, the governments, the, the politics pressing in, if we're an institution, if we're dependent on flourishing through those outward means, then when that pressure comes and that difficulty comes, we shut down. We, we, we don't know what to do. Our purpose is gone. Our cause is ended. But the majority of the believers, historically, and the ones that are existing today around the world, they are not a part of an institution. They're part of a living organism connected to a God who asks big things. He asks them to step out and do something that they would have never done on their own. He asks them to move into discomfort, to be imprisoned, to be old and still ministering. to be a slave on the run and now asked to turn back and confront his past. There are portions of scripture I always go to and this is one of them. Because I need to be reminded every single day who I am in God. The gospel shows me my position before him is humbly, humbly depleted of all power, not able to be the husband I should be, not able to be the father I should be not able to be the follower that he would desire me to be, needing him so desperately. And when he asks big asks, and I hesitate, his gracious, loving way is to move me forward. So Paul turns to Onesimus and he, he, he says, you've got to go back 1,300 miles. I know you just walked it. Your sandals are worn out. You're tired. And you know what could happen to you as you turn around and go back. The, the, the journey's dangerous, right? I mean, it's not like today. The journey, is da- the journey itself is dangerous. And the idea that you would go back and submit yourself to the consequences because the reference here is that, man, you didn't just run away. I think you stole something. You did something bad. You, you could be facing some severe consequences. I'll help you out, Paul says. I'll, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll put my reputation on the line. And so the gospel moving through Paul makes Paul a conduit here, an image of the gospel, right? I, I'm going to represent you. I'm going to ask that it be placed on my account. But you're going to have to take the steps forward. And in that, as you do that, demonstrate the power of the gospel in your life to move you out of what you dreamed of, what you planned for, what you desired, and put you into an insecure position to where it's out of your hands. So, slave, go back and be a slave. Slave, walk into a position where you are insecure and unsure of your future which goes against the very nature of our human core because we want security, we want surety, we want autonomy, 
and the power we are as a church is not based on individuals. It's based on body. A body of people that come and meld together that we become like, if you like science fiction, the Borg. <laughs> we come together and we are enveloped and we lose our identity and become somebody different. And so he turns to Onesimus and says, brother, you've got to go back and become part of that. You've got to lose yourself. Now the other big ask was for Philemon, right? Brother, I know he stole. I know he did something terrible. I know he ran. And he, under Roman law, deserves severe punishment, quite possibly death. But I desire that you would accept him back and that you would love him now as something completely different. The ask, the big ask. We face the big asks in our lives. Some of us have run from them. Because Onesimus could have said, Paul, I, I'm so thankful for the gospel, and I'm, I'm very thankful that I now have understanding of life in Christ. But you know what? That ask is just too big of an ask. I'm going to go the other direction 1,300 miles. Some of you might have turned your back on the asks. I've struggled with asks. I've been a conduit of the asks, and I've had people walk away. I know it's possible. We're not manipulated to obey. God does not supersede our will in the sense that he pushes us to sanctification. He asks that we obey in submission. So that ask is sometimes a very hard ask. And the asks don't change, right? If you're 17 or you're 70, I had this illusion that as I got older, the asks would be less. What I've learned is that I've gotten older, the asks get deeper. They get more profound. They get more profound. But accompanying those asks is an opportunity to represent a truth that we could not do on our own. You see, those asks that God presents to us gives us an opportunity to emulate the truth of the gospel. And you can only imagine the picture that we have here of an old guy reaching a young guy, asking the big ask of returning to reconciliation, to being reconciled. One of the greatest pictures of the power of the gospel is seen through the, the gift of reconciliation of two men, of two women, of a husband and a wife, of a community reconciling through the power of the gospel. That's an amazing testimony. The world scratches its head and does not understand. It does not comprehend how that can take place. That ask is amazing. And that ask is what we see here. Go through and emulate, live out the power of the gospel, even in your immaturity. Like We're not going to measure your years of maturity by the days you have as a believer. right? So Paul's not saying, hey, I'll give you some time to mature this, to grow in your understanding of, of the power of God in your life. No, there's a big ask that comes right away. Because we as, as human beings want God to give us the time and the space to grow into it. 
Just give me some time. Give me some space. I'll mature and then give me the big, big asks down the road. And I'm sure I'll respond correctly then. And you won't. You won't. You won't. One of the, the terrible things that occurs in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ is grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit comes when we look at those and listen to those asks and we say, no, thank you. And we grieve, we grieve the spirit that dwells and lives within us and desires and understands what that ask means to the glory of God and the good of my life. And you can imagine what the picture must have been We don't have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. We don't have the rest of the story. But we can imagine the beauty of this. Paul desired to close out this chapter as an old guy and see the power of the gospel go into this community, into this house church, and see the gospel explode in front of the community as these two men were reconciled and as they embraced each other, as Paul said, no longer is worthless, but now is something of great worth. You see, the gospel now would bring this one slave to Philemon up to equal status. And in finding equal status as they embraced his brothers, he would drop himself down and he would submit himself again to the will of another. So many beautiful things that we can see here that need to be evident in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So here you sit. You're in Union Lake. Some of you I can see are a little older than me. Some are a little bit younger than me. If you are in Christ and the power of the gospel is saving you, every day, is sanctifying you, is transforming you, those asks are there. You might need to unplug your ears. You might need to unclutter your heart so you can get in tune and understand and listen correctly, but those asks are there. How will you respond? Will you grieve? Or will you Celebrate. Will you represent? See, it doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, what country you find yourself in. The power of the local church, the power of the church is found in the lives of men and women who respond to that ask and represent lives that are transformed by the power of the gospel. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, after he lays out to the church there, that's going through difficulty. Don't, don't worry. The mystery has been revealed. The church, in chapter 2, he, he encourages them. The power of the gospel created the, the mystery revealed, and we are part of that. And then he goes into chapter 3, and he expresses his desire. He says, I get down on bended knees that you would understand and experience the dimensions of a relationship that is alive and vibrant in Jesus Christ. He talks about the depth and the width. He gives the image of this tree, right? That this this gospel impact on our life is 
three-dimensional. It's not stagnant. It's not one dimension. It's to go deep. It's to go high. It's to go wide. And it gives a reflection of Jeremiah chapter 17 where you go back to, to the verses that talk about the, the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, is planted like a tree, right? And even through times of desert and difficulty, even through times of anguish, the roots go so deep that the tree can go so high that it will bear fruit and have leaves in times of despair, in times of drought. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the church is not dependent on its institutional capacity or what we find on the outside, but its power is found in the ability of the gospel to come in to transform. Its power is found in each individual that is willing to submit and answer the asks. Yes. No matter how small or how large they are. That's the power. My encouragement to you this morning as it is, and if you are sitting here in Nicaragua or in Costa Rica or in Ecuador or in Germany, God is asking. If you are a born-again believer, he's asking. His desire for you is that you live out the power of the gospel. My plea to you is respond affirmatively and submit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the, the gospel in our lives that gives us hope that we are a living organism that is pulled together through Jesus Christ, that that relationship is all we need, that you have promised to, if we seek you above all things, provide for all of our needs, whether we are 70, 80, or 17, or 7. God, you are the God of all the universe given all authority in heaven and on earth. And we are so thankful. In Christ's name we pray.